Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis, and each week I sit down with my battle-scarred but indomitably optimistic investment manager friend Peter Silent to chew over the latest developments in the markets and debate what they might mean for governments, investors and taxpayers. Well, Peter, I thought I'd start this week by uh, commenting on something that I've just been looking at. I've been looking at the uh, some indicators of what is happening across Europe in terms of uh, activity, traffic, uh, people uh, going on the roads, people going back to their offices. All these things can be tracked these days thanks to Google and so on. And everything is continuing to go up at a steady uh, pace of recovery. In other words, the lockdowns are ending and people are going back to work uh, and the economy is very slowly reviving. Yet, despite that, in this week we've had this uh, uh, quite a noticeable sell-off in the stock market, uh, which seems to be, once again, doing things that we don't expect. So what, uh, what do you think is going on with the stock market in that context? Jonathan, your observation that things appear to be moving is quite right. And if you look at the graphs that cover things like the movement of traffic, or another interesting one is the utilization of electricity, these trends are all pointing upwards now. Now, of course, the FT put it as follows. They wrote, how can stocks appear so rosy while the global economy suffers so much pain? The answer to that question, I think, is, lies in what you just said. Mysteriously, these things are beginning to normalize. And I saw an app the other day, uh, which my son showed me, as a matter of fact, where you could track air traffic. And he said to me, what do you think that this picture will look like now before I show it to you? And I said, well, it'll probably look very thin on the ground with practically nothing full of blanks and empty space. Instead, what he showed me really surprised me. It was black with traffic, whether it's over Europe or over America. There's a lot of air traffic going on. So you've got, in my opinion, and I'm interested to hear what you think about the role played by the media, because you've got the media, which is trying to badmouth the financial markets and many participants and ingredients thereof. Then you've got the stock market, which is going up, except for that one day this week. And then you've got the economy, which is justifying what the stock market has been signaling to us in the last few weeks. So I suppose my question to you is, what do you think made the stock market wobble to quite an important degree two days ago? Well, it was interesting, wasn't it? I mean, uh, looking at the figures, the uh, on average, most European stock markets are down between, I think, 5 and 7% this week, which is uh, potentially quite significant. Um, I think it's fairly straightforward. I think it's, the media has a part to play in it, but I don't think it's really about the media. I just think it's a function of how, uh, how these markets work which is that they have become what we what we like to call, if we look at in technical terms, overbought. In other words, there's been such a strong recovery that it's got, the market's got a little bit ahead of itself. And uh, therefore, people say, well, there must be some trigger for this change in uh, direction, if you like. Uh, and of course, uh, there may be, but it's uh, it's simplistic. The, one, the ones you read in the newspaper headlines are very simplistic. Uh, and I think uh, what we need to look at is actually the 
if you like, the, uh, the technical conditions in the stock market more than anything else. In other words, what goes up for a long time tends to go get ahead of itself and there's a period of normalization because, as you say, the underlying economic and, uh, uh, indicators are, in fact, moving in the right direction. And I know that you're a, not even a crypto chartist, but a declared chartist. And I read a very interesting report about the, the various charts that have pierced through their 10-day uh, moving averages or longer moving averages and stochastics and all the rest of it, which show clearly that, as you say, the market was overbought. And so for the market to take a breather from those levels, I think is completely normal because these things don't go in a straight line, neither up nor down nor sideways. And that's the market. So that didn't surprise me so much. The more interesting discussion is whether the, there is a new army of day traders who are all people who are homebound and they're all people who have hoarded cash either because they had to or because they had nothing to spend it on and decided to turn to play around in the financial markets and for the bears of which there are still very very many uh, this is a another reason to be bearish because the bears will tell you that these are not serious uh, financial markets agents or participants. They're also uh, beginners. And um, I would add to that, incidentally, that they're not as big in terms of size as the newspaper would have one believe. So I think they're largely irrelevant, but they are being discussed and they have been discussed this week. I don't know what you think. Maybe you're one of them, Jonathan. Uh, absolutely not. I am absolutely not. Uh, what is true, I think, I mean, I have seen some figures on this. They do show that the number of new accounts opened at uh, some of the spread betting firms, for example, have gone up. The share prices of some of those firms have gone up as well. Uh, and there's been lots of new accounts opened. You're absolutely right. It may be some people being bored and uh, having nothing else to do, uh, but looking at their computer. Uh, that's possible. But I, as, as a factor in the stock market movements, I would be very skeptical about that. Uh, I mean, at the margin, yes, it would mean there'd be some more people interfering. But I'm not a great believer that actually, uh, if you know the old, uh, the old <coughs> story about the stock market, you know, you'd be, someone would come along and ask you, well, what's uh, you know what happened? Why is the stock market going up? And and somebody would reply, well, there's more buyers and sellers. You know, whether even that isn't true, I don't think. I mean, what is because it's not the number of buyers or sellers; it's the nature of those buyers or sellers who are, which is relevant to uh, how the market behaves as we've seen, because if we just looked at all the surveys of, of people's views about the market, they've all been, you know, majority are still very negative, very cautious, and so on. And yet the market has been going up very strongly. So somebody has been doing, generating some extra demand from somewhere. And that's why actually, incidentally, look at charts It's not because I, I'm, I'm not an out and out chartist in the sense I believe in all this mumbo jumbo that people come up with. But all that charts do is they look at um, trends and deviations from trends. That's all it is. And on the whole, if things, you know, most of the time there is a there is a, a trend in one direction and sometimes the market moves a little bit above and sometimes it moves a little bit below and sometimes it moves significantly above. And I think you can look at the charts today, you'll see that 
uh, you know, things like NASDAQ and so on, they have performed very strongly, uh, but they have looked what we call overextended. In other words, the, you know, the amount of uh, uh, the deviation above the trend line has become significant. And that normally means there'll be a bit of a setback uh, and it will move back towards that uh, basic trend. So I'm, I'm skeptical about, um, about the day traders. I'm sure it may be, that may be some of that going on, but I can't believe that's actually significantly driving the stock market in the direction it is. I could ask you also about the headlines. I mean, it's very interesting that um, having worked in the media, you know, I remember the days when I used to be asked to, you know, write a market report and uh, they'd come to you and say, well, look, the stock market's gone up by 1% today. You know, what is the reason for that? And, <laughs> and as I said, if you reply, were well, more buyers and sellers, they, they didn't think that was very impressive. They always wanted to assign a reason to every movement in the market. Um, and this week, we, for example, we've had uh, in the UK, we've had, uh, you know, the Bank of England uh, and some official figures about the recession uh, saying that, you know, the, in April, the economy shrunk by the most it's ever shrunk in the history of mankind. And, uh, <clears throat> and that must have an impact. In other words, that goes into the newspapers, that fills the headlines. And that has an, Im an impact on people's sentiment, I think. We all know from behavioral analysis, that uh, behavioral finance rather, that, you know, people are overly influenced by the most recent news and the one that is most uh, extravagant in its uh, in its its in apparent implications and i think that's what we've been seeing i mean basically the headlines came out this week it's given people a uh, an excuse to uh, you know to uh, uh, to sit back and maybe take some profits or whatever they how you like to think about it uh, and we'll see but of course it doesn't mean there can't be new news i mean if there was a sudden and really serious second wave of infections then that would have an impact on on the stock market but at the moment the trends in uh, as far as i read them anyway are continuing to fall the, the rate of infection is still pretty low there are some anomalies in the states i mean that was a good example of how the newspapers attributed this week's uh, movement in the stock market also to uh, indications that in one or two states in america the number of deaths were going up and so on and the risk of a second wave uh, there's all sorts of things going on swirling around that go to make the market um, I don't know what, um, I don't suppose that you've been day trading, uh, Peter, in any sense this week, have you? I don't call, well, day trading, I think, means when you, when you buy something on Wednesday and you sell it again on Wednesday. Exactly. Or if you sell something short on, or not short on Wednesday and buy it back on the same day. I don't think I've ever done that in my life. Um, if you're asking me whether I took the plunge and invested when the markets were extremely weak well the answer is i did because that's what markets are there for they're there to be used and if you're convinced by a longer term scenario and provided you buy the sort of stocks and companies businesses that i like then you should take advantage of share price weaknesses for no real reason as happened on on thursday it was Sorry, not Friday, on Thursday. I hasten to add that I read that there is the fact that as far as the Standard & Poor's 500 is concerned, that for the first time since World War II, this index rose more than 40% in 50 days. And that's quite something. So it caught a lot of people by surprise. Not everyone, but a lot of people. And so you have this sort of reaction to that sort of, of fact but your comments about the what the newspaper headlines 
right, what the newspapers put in as headlines is quite right. And that's because readers prefer bad news to good news, especially when it comes to the financial markets, and especially when the majority of players are bearish and not bullish. It's an ideal breeding ground for the media's negative messages to get through. Um, I remember very well your, your writings in the Financial Times and elsewhere, which I read with keen interest at the time, but I didn't think that you had that sort of um, brief that you had to have a catchy headline all the time. Uh, yours was very thought through and reflective. But of course, you're right. But that takes us back to what I said earlier. You've got a three-part um, sort of wrangling. You've got the media and you've got the investors and you've got the market as a whole in the middle. And I think that it comes back to the message that we must not have a lot of respect for individual market players, but we need to have unlimited respect for the market as a whole. In my experience, the market does tend to be right much more often than it tends to be wrong. To address your final point about the virus, that is indeed something very worrying that I've noticed, and I think it's more or less everywhere, which is that people have become very nonchalant about the virus, especially the younger people. And so the discipline with which they practice social distancing and mask wearing, face covering, that discipline is very lax in very many parts. And as I say, especially with the youngsters who continue to assemble in numbers which are too great because they think they're not going to catch the virus. So I think that is the risk that we've got that the, the black swan, which was the first wave of the virus, comes back to surprise us sometime when, the, when it gets colder again. And of course, when that happens, if it happens, then restaurants will no longer have terraces on offer where people can eat outside, and they will not be allowed to eat inside. And I'm just taking one example in the hospitality area. But of course, that would cause the economy to go down again in a second wave. So that's the risk. Absolutely. And uh, I think that's been clear from the very beginning that uh, there is this potentially or what appears to be this trade-off between uh, <clears throat> the pace at which you uh, allow normality to return and the risk of a second wave of infections. Though, of course, it's, there's also, <laughs> it's not just the stock market about which there's uh, enormous uh, arguments on both sides. You can be very you know, passionately on one side or the other about this virus as well. I mean, some people now saying that, of course, actually a lot of these lockdown measures weren't actually necessary because if you look at the data more closely, it appears that the, uh, the rate of infection, the, uh, the, uh, the famous R number, was actually declining before the lockdown actually started. Well, I don't know. I'm not a specialist. I'm not, a, I'm not that good a mathematician or let alone an epidemiologist. Um, and that controversy is going to run on, I think. And of course, there are people who are uh, particularly associated with business who are saying, well, of course, you know, the governments around the world are being far too uh, slow in getting us back to normality because meanwhile, the bill for all this is rising. Uh, and again, that's something I think which we need to confront the possibility that we, we can't see clearly, yet, at least I can't see clearly yet. You may be in your wisdom, Peter, able to do this, but I can't see clearly exactly how this whole 
massive program of monetary and fiscal stimulus that we're seeing from around the world, how is that going to play out? And what impact is that going to have in the longer term uh, on things like uh, inflation, uh, employment, and so on, not to mention um, the way that society is organized and the levels of taxation and the way that uh, businesses are treated. I mean, there's a lot of issues out there, which I think we can't just wish away, uh, but they're not yet, it's not at least as far as I'm concerned, they're not yet uh, clear enough to be sure about which direction that's going to go in the medium to longer term. I don't know what you think about that. What I certainly think, I know, in fact, is that these topics are going to stay with us for quite a long time. And you and I will be talking about this on a very regular basis. And I think that one needs to be looking every week at the ingredients, the ingredients which could either spark uh, inflation or, or which could spark deflation. And although governments have borrowed huge amounts of money, and although the, the pessimists expect that you know Big Brother will come back with a vengeance and tax rates only have one way to go. Um, last week, we discussed the fact that the German government lowered VAT rates from 19% to 16%, I think, across the board. Now I read again this week that um, a couple of other governments are following down that path maybe a little bit more selectively so for example when it comes to restaurants and foods and food outlets and so on the vat rate has gone down that rather surprised me but that points to a, an ongoing fight against deflation and a deflationary bust rather than a worry that too much money has been chasing too few goods money which has been printed as if there was no tomorrow by the central banks and money that is being borrowed from the capital markets and underwritten by the same central banks. And so older people uh, like Moses and Methuselah would normally, from their tendency, they would expect that inflation has got to come back because they remember it. But younger operators who don't know really how to behave during inflationary periods, not mention how to invest during such periods they're scratching their heads um i've told you before my view you asked me my view on this i'm firmly in the non-inflationary camp and i'm firmly torn between expecting either a deflationary bust or a deflationary boom if it's the former then as an investor one has to be particularly careful about what one invests in and if it's the latter, then you can expect, as the Fed chairman told us to expect, um, at least two more years of very low interest rates and very low bond yields. If you have that background with an environment of growth, then, of course, there is very little scope uh, for inflation to come back. There is very little scope why the markets should push up bond yields. And above all, above all, there is very little scope for pessimists to argue that the markets are very expensive because they're not. Well, certainly, if <coughs> if the Federal Reserve is, is right, I mean, it has been quite extraordinary. I think people have commented on the fact that its uh, famous dot plot, which is the uh, expectations of the members of its, uh, of its uh, monetary policy making body committee, um, is correct, then... 
uh, we've never seen anything like it before. It's basically sort of flat and zero for, for the, the foreseeable future. Now, I have to say, I'm a little bit of a skeptic of this. I, I think if I, if I had done a lot of betting, I would be betting against the Fed dot plot because uh, anyone who's lived through this knows that it's a very, what actually happens has little bearing on what they actually say they expect to happen. And that's not their fault. It's just that that's the way the world goes. Um, so I would be surprised if that actually turns out to be the case, but I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with your, your main thesis that inflation was going to take a long time to come back if indeed it does come back. And um, not least because of we've got ourselves into this kind of policy mindset where uh, everything will be done in that direction. I wonder though whether, um, I suppose the concern is still that the policymakers are doing, they've learned something from recent crises, the global financial crisis and now this one. They've, they have discovered that it is possible to uh, influence uh, significantly market sentiment and investors' behavior. Uh, but they're kind of hooked on this drug. And the question is, you know, where, <laughs> at some point, like all drugs, this one, this one is going to run out of efficacy. Uh, and there may be some bound to it. We don't know what it is, but there may be some bound to how effective it can be in achieving, you know, short-term alleviation of, uh, of deflationary fears. Um, but, you know, at some point, there must be some, one still feels, at least I still feel, there has to be some kind of, Day of reckoning, it can't be that easy. There must be a price attached to all this. And the question is, what is that price? Uh, and I think that's something we still have to find out. Easy to say, will be the price will be inflation, uh, but as you've argued, that may not be the case. Um, I'm also just another thing on more concerned a little bit about what impact this has. You know, if there's going to be e effectively easy money for almost everybody, uh, which looks like being the case for the time being. Uh, what is that going to happen to the, to the normal process of corporate renewal, if you like? In other words, um, the issue of whether or not uh, good companies or bad companies survive or whether they go bust and are replaced by new and more uh, successful entrepreneurial innovative companies. Uh, and there's been some, so far, been, there have been some more bankruptcies in America, but not as many perhaps as the, uh, as the, bar, the markets were originally expecting. Uh, what's going on there, Peter, do you think? And what do you... Uh, what do you make of this, uh, this uh, Hertz business, which I know you've been keen to talk about? The Hertz business is absolutely fascinating because I've never seen anything like this before. So Hertz went into chapter 11 to protect themselves through the courts against their creditors while they rearrange their business. So meanwhile, of course, the bond price has collapsed and therefore any additional debt to be taken by Hertz would be very expensive for Hertz. And of course, there'd be a lot of collateral um, um, conditions attached there too. So what did Hertz do? And I find that really fascinating. There was a difference between their authorized share capital and their issued share capital. And so they have come out with an issue of new shares on the basis that the cost of equity is much lower than the cost of debt which of course is not true in the wider bond market and certainly not in the sovereign bond market. But when it comes to junky areas in the corporate bond market, it is an interesting phenomenon that has indeed developed. So Hertz is raising money through issuing new shares, which of course immediately met with protest from existing shareholders who felt diluted and went to court 
and the judge waved them away. And so you've got this situation where, which I've never seen before, and I'm very curious to see whether it will be taken up by other indebted companies, of which there are, of course, quite a lot. In a way, I hope that it will, because it will make it less likely that the corporate bond yields will widen again compared with sovereign bond yields and makes it less likely that there will be waves of bankruptcies out there. So it's, it's positive, but it does show that there's not uniformly across the board very, very cheap money to be had by all and sundry. The market is selective in that. But the Hertz story I find fascinating, and I assume that you've never seen something like this either, have you? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, that's certainly true. I mean, I suppose that the, stepping back a little bit, if you, um, you know, chapter 11 itself is sometimes seen as a, a controversial method, but it's uh, of uh, allowing companies to kind of refinance effectively when they're about to go bust, effectively what it is, I think. Um, and it's uh, <clears throat> very interesting. So the question is, you know, is Hertz a good company in its current format? In other words, obviously, it's been very badly affected by uh, the uh, the virus because obviously people have stopped stopped driving, you know, taking holidays and all the rest of it. Uh, but actually, is it was it a good company before, and is it a good company now? Uh, I did notice it did have quite a lot of cash as well, uh, which is interesting. It had about a billion dollars in cash uh, when it went into bankruptcy and, or into Chapter Eleven rather. Um, it's a very confusing story. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen anything like it before. Um, but what I suppose the question I'm asking, therefore, is what would have happened, you know, if we weren't in these extraordinary times? Um, you know, what would have happened to Hertz? Was it would it actually have gone bust anyway, or would it actually have been uh, uh, a you know a company that can continue to thrive? You'd think it would be because it's a significantly large company in a in a with a strong market position. Yes, but the problem for them, and I haven't done any, not even the beginnings of an in-depth study on Hertz. Uh, I don't know much about it. I know that they have a lot of leased cars, so they have they might have cash on the one side, but they've also got liabilities. Exactly. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the the other thing to bear in mind is that the 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 blood life, or whatever you call it, of their business lies in in renting out cars to passengers who have landed at airports. Yes. And so, given the fact that airports are now more or less uh, you know, pretty dead in the water for the time being still, uh, they've therefore lost a major source of income, which, which in, before the virus uh, would have happened from time to time because it is a cyclical business, car rental business. It's a, it is a relatively cyclical business. Um, so I can't tell you whether they would have gone bankrupt or not. Probably not. But be that as it may, I just think that there are things moving in the background, which means that the economic agents of yesterday, whether they're, whether they're governments or corporations or consumers or platforms, those new and very powerful economic agents, I think that their roles are going to morph into something else. And I find it very interesting to observe. And then one must try and forecast who are going to be the main players in five years' time, let's say. 
Well, that's a very good question, Peter, to which I have to say at this point, I do not have an answer. Uh, but that's one which will be interesting to discuss in, in future weeks. Um, I think that's really it this week. We've had, uh, we've seen, as I say, an interesting week in the markets with the stock markets falling, particularly in Europe. Uh, and uh, a lot of, uh, uh, how do we put it, uh, a lot of discussion about where we are in, in the cycle of the of the virus and also in the cycle of the economic uh, recovery that we're all hoping to see quite soon. Uh, I think that's all we've got time for this week, Peter, but uh, I look forward to discussing all these matters again next week. So do I, and thank you very much indeed, Jonathan. Have a nice weekend. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced and available for distribution every Saturday. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or M&M podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.